Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that pushes the parameters in discussing motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have some feedback from our social media posts, including cars with spats. Do they help or hinder the design? We posted some pictures of classic European cars, like Jaguars, including one from the Endeavour TV series. But one that gained the most attention was the 1968 Holden Monaro. We also put up some pictures of classic Jaguars and a beautiful car, the Fiat 2300S Coupe. In our feature stories, RMIT University in Melbourne is now offering a short course in flying car and autonomous flight engineers. We talked to our resident transport expert, Brian Smith, on whether flying cars will become a significant transport option or a quirky fun drive for a few. And talking about the Shannon's Classic that was on last Sunday, Fred Brain and I discuss what caught our eye from the 1500 vintage veteran and classic cars that were on display. For more information, you can go to drivenmedia.com.au or on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and Spotify, search for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 26th of August 2023. Let's start with some feedback from our social media posts that we've done within the last week. Now, do spats on a car, that's those coverings over the rear wheels, improve the look or take away from the impact of the wheels as part of the overall design? Possibly one of the clearest examples of spats on a car on television is the current television show Endeavour, which is a prequel to the Inspector Morse series. Now, Endeavour drives around in a Mark I Jaguar with spats covering completely the rear wheels. We put up a series of cars that appeared at the Shannon's classic motor show that had some spats and for reasons I can't explain I like the ones on lighter colored cars with more square design such as the yellow Ford Thunderbird we had. There were other cars at the show with spats including FJ, HD and HG Holdens and some big American Yank Tanks. Now in the feedback Nicholas Scarf said 2.4 litre Mark 1s were fitted with full spats, that's like Endeavour, but the 3.4 Mark 1s had cutaway spats. Stephen Felsheneth said, really depends on the car and if it was part of the original design. They look great on a Jaguar XK120 but terrible on a VW Beetle. Talking about the Jaguar, Gis George said, My XK120 Fender Skirts, another name for spats, he said his popped out and fell off with every bump in the road, but looked good when the car was standing still. <laughs> Paul Hunter commented on our photo that said, A nice 1954 Vauxhall Vagabond with spats. Also interesting names. We might do that as a story later. And Stuart Poole said, I don't like them at all, but if someone loves them on their car, it's their business. Two things I would remove if a classic car came with them, spats and a sunshield. 
I've paid to have the holes welded up to banish one on my Mini. Readers did send in their own pictures of cars with spats, including quite a few EH Holdens. But the most strident comments, the most negative, were for a light blue 1969 Holden Monaro. Comments included Paul Bartlett saying, Monaro looks hideous with spats. Also, original Prius had spats, didn't improve looks. And Chris Boyagian said, it depends on the car. Some cars look better with them, others without. From those pictures, they all suit except for the Jaguar and the Monaro slash Premier. But in the defence of the Monaro, Steve Golby said they're actually period correct, but very rare. And we also put up some photos from that uh, Shannon's Day of a collection of Jaguars. Many responded with approval. Andy McDonald responded to a picture of a S-Type Jaguar by saying same model and colour as my second Jaguar, wish I still had it. And Peter Davison said, for me, probably the best cat. But perhaps the most passionate was Ingolf Desberg. I have a voiceover artist to note what they said. Ingolf Desberg, elles sont splendides et merveilleuses, toutes ces magnifiques, excellentes Jaguars, des sublimes voitures de rêve, des très grandes beautés, je les adore tout heureusement, Gemma. Now apparently the translation is that they are splendid and wonderful, all these magnificent, excellent Jaguars, sublime dream cars, very great beauties, I adore them all, fortunately, I have my sovereign, these are extraordinary, luxurious, very elegant, comfortable cars. Clearly, Ingolf is not holding back. And finally, we put up a separate photo. Quite a few companies have two-door coupes based on a four-door sedan from the one model. Some coupes look contrived and lack any elegance, in my opinion, but some I really think are design successes. We put up a picture of a Fiat 2300S coupe from the late 1960s, and the reader response was very supportive. You're listening to Overdrive. RMIT, the university in Melbourne, they claim they are a global university of technology, design and enterprise. Well, they're now offering a nano course or nano degree in flying cars and autonomous flight engineer. It's a $2,000 course, and it's available, and I presume you do it online. Is it a viable situation? Is it a necessary situation? Who better to talk about that than our good friend Brian Smith, a transport planner extraordinaire. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Thank you for raising this subject. Is it a necessary course? Look, it might be premature, David. I, I mean, I think autonomous vehicles, there's going to be some developments in autonomous vehicles. I think they will mostly be focused on vehicles with kind of fixed paths like buses that, that can you know, maybe run in part of their own right of way and the like. But look, I, I think there's quite a few issues with autonomous vehicles and not to mention flying cars. So the idea of uh, of kind of like human carrying drones or flying cars, I think, um, you know, is a, is a degree that 
that might be uh, a few degrees too far, if you know what I mean, David. They talk about engineering skills, including 3D robot motion control and quad rotor dynamics. Autonomy may be one thing, but flying may be another. But then again, putting a pilot in there, of course, raises the concern of taking up capacity for something that's small. And by the by, given our push towards obesity, quad rotor doesn't seem to be enough in my mind. <laughs> Go up to the quintuple. It'll be like uh, razor blades, David, where the number of the of the uh, blades increases <laughs> increase until you're up there like 30 blades with each of them got a, a separate task. So the, I think the more helicopter blades, the better to keep these things up. I, I actually saw a... Um, a video of, of this uh, hangar in Germany, this massive uh, hangar, and uh, I think it had been a Zeppelin hangar, something like that, and they um, they operate with these kind of dirigibles, single-person dirigibles. They take detailed sort of weighing of you, very precise weighing, and then they work out how much gas will keep you upright. And um, they strap you in underneath these balloons and uh, you more or less uh, move levers that represent wings that kind of kind of push you through the water a bit like breaststroke but through the air and <laughs> and so so i think um i think it would be better and safer to have dirigibles than to have these sort of uh, heavy motored things with wings like and and uh, rotors that could uh, you know come down among crowds and the like, I, I have some real concerns about driving abilities on the road. I think um, driving abilities in the air, uh, in the absence of pilot licences, might be much more hazardous. Two things. One, if it's Australian, it won't do the breaststroke. It'll have to do the Australian crawl, crawl. Mm. of course. Uh, the other thing, though, is that the dirigible may be much quieter, that if we're using this helicopter-type spinning, then, to my mind, my understanding is that we may end up with much more noise. Yes, the humming of these damn things, they'll be pretty loud. Those small drones that take footage, you can hear them when they're close. Um, something bigger than that would be, I guess, less noisy than a helicopter, but certainly would have a bit of noise of the blades slapping the air away. Uh, look, I, I think there's a long way to go before this makes any sense at all. I mean, I think Uber a while ago talked about, you know, having... Yep. Flying cars or um, or these sort of drones by 2023, and of course that has has come and gone. They they bailed on that. Morgan Stanley, the U.S. investment firm, thinks the market for flying taxis is worth 2.3 trillion dollars by 2040. Now this is bizarre to me that that the market for this what which would be highly exclusive. I mean, will they require helipads on the roofs of buildings? I just I just can't see. A mm. uh, flying taxi being of any use at all except for very wealthy people with lots of time pressures. I wonder if we, it might be like mobile phones, which we thought would be an executive toy, but then turned into something that was fantastic, for example, for the tradesperson on the site, and that there may be the use of them other than just for rich executives or executives from rich companies, uh, their suggestions might be police officers, flights over the barrier reef, seaplanes, Sydney seaplanes. These aren't solving a transport problem, David. Having scenic tours, great. You can have a scenic tour with anything you like, right? It's not 
actually making a difference to our cities. And if you make these things ubiquitous, then they can't function. I mean, you just can't have the sky filled with devices like this zooming around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it just seems crazy to me that um, that people are pursuing this. I mean, again, the, the you know the the cruise over the Great Barrier Reef and this sort of stuff. That's a, again a kind of exclusivity element to it. You know, it's not and cops on above in the air. We've got helicopters now. Uh, I guess you know again you see them on bicycles or segways. Maybe there might be some promotional opportunity in having the cops uh, cruising around in in sort of low orbit or something like that. But it just uh, just seems a silly thing to me, David. A freight? Do you think there may be an opportunity for certainly parcel delivery? We've seen that now. Do you think that might be able to expand a little? It could, David. It just seems... um, you know, one small drone or vehicle like that carrying a small amount of cargo, how can it be cost effective? Uh, my firm looked um, at the use of, um, of autonomous drones for parcel delivery, but in remote areas. So the idea that, that um, you know, a train may bring parcels to a railhead and then someone on a, a remote cattle station or something like that, sort of outback rural areas, you know, these things could be effective in terms of delivering, say, important produce or, or medicines and things like that to a remote area. We could see a value there. But, but you know, the idea of the, that, um, you know, you, you're having individual, I guess, bicycle couriers is probably the closest I can think to these, that they would come to these things. You know, a whole bunch of airborne bicycle couriers carrying small parcels around the city. It just, again, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. You'd certainly have to think about very strong measures of control. You mentioned corridors. You mentioned, you know, certain things. It wouldn't be a free-for-all. Certainly the technology suggests that you may, I mean, maybe you could do that, but, uh, you know, it would take only one crash like a autonomous car to have headlines screaming. Well, true. How do you license these things? I mean, you know, you're, you're pilot in command. It's either autonomous or there's someone, you know, controlling it in some way. It's not an accident that it costs ten or $20,000 to get a pilot's license in this country because anything up in the air when it comes down can cause some problems. So, hmm. um, you know, how you regulate these things, how you determine, you know, their safety requirements. Just think of of how Tesla is doing with their kind of full self-driving, which is not exactly proving itself to be full self-driving, with uh, quite high-profile um, crashes and evidence that the com- company's not necessarily addressing, allegedly, the problems with the system. So on the ground, you've got cameras and LIDAR and all sorts of stuff to control a vehicle on the on the surface. Uh, you'd have to increase that exponentially to handle three dimensions up in the air. Brian, always lovely to talk to you and uh, we can go on for hours and I would enjoy uh, hearing all that you've got to say. But uh, for the moment, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Brian Smith, a transport planner who works with a major consulting firm, WSP, and has done great work over the years in broadening the understanding of what transport is really meant to be and what it's all about. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia.
Toyota 70 Series Land Cruisers are an icon of the Australian automotive landscape. Their popularity sometimes goes beyond logic as they are old school and expensive. And also, for the last 12 months or so, it's been impossible to order one. Now, Toyota have announced an upgraded version, due here in the last quarter of 2023. The 70 Series will now come with a choice of engines, refreshed styling and more convenience features. The big news is that alongside the familiar V8 diesel, buyers can now choose an alternative 2.8-litre four-cylinder turbo diesel with a six-speed automatic transmission. This is the same combination found in the Hilux and Prado. The 70 Series vehicles will be offered in a choice of single cab ute, dual cab ute, troop carrier and wagon. In addition to the new engine choice, there are a few convenience upgrades, including a larger 6.7-inch central touchscreen and wired smartphone connectivity. Safety upgrades include lane keep assist and auto high beam headlights. We will let you know pricing when it becomes available, but if history is a guide, they will be expensive. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. Last Sunday, we went to Sydney Motorsport Park to the Shannon's Classic Day, where they invite and organise through the the Council of Motor Clubs to the organisation of getting together what was 1,500 veteran vintage and classic vehicles to put on display for a great variety, an eclectic group of motoring uh, memorabilia in many ways. Our good friend Fred Brain was there to help me uh, savour the delights of the occasion. Good day, Fred. Hello, Dave. Spats on cars. This is where you cover in part or all of the wheel with an extension of the body, a, a spat like they used to be on shoes, that extra little bit that uh, they put on them to add so-called looks. Uh, do you like them or not? In a nutshell, well, no, I have to say. <laughs> they appear to be of limited benefit. In racing circles, they could have an aerodynamic benefit. From a road car point of view, visually, I don't really see any benefit, I have to say. You see, that's where I need people like you. I am very superficial. I thought of it only in terms of looks. You've, of course, added that dimension of aerodynamics to it. I don't think they'd look good on older, darker, humpy-type cars. You saw the one on an FJ Holden. I didn't think that suited it particularly well. And some of the earlier Jaguars, you remember the Mark 1s and maybe the Mark 2s? Doing a bit of research on the Mark 2 Jag, which had had spats that followed the line of the uh, – followed the shape of the tyre around and covered pretty much all the tyre. So they didn't cut across the centre of the wheel. But to my mind, they didn't look good. And reading um, reading forums on, on JAGs to do with those spats, the, I think some people thought they looked good. Some JAG owners thought they looked good. Some said that, thought they looked terrible. And indeed, you can actually get um, optional or, or get aftermarket ones that are much thinner. If you look at the TV series Endeavour for Inspector Morse, they drove around in a black Mark 1 or 2, I I can't remember, and that had full spats over the back. I didn't think that worked at all well. The one that they saw that I thought didn't look too bad was the Ford Thunderbird, which had sort of half spats over there. But again, it was light in colour, and it wasn't quite as rounded. It, It looked... 
if it integrates well enough with the rear wheel arch, ah. so it doesn't look like a tack-on type of or a fill-in bit of uh, metal or plastic or whatever it's made out of. For example, the uh, the old Monaro ones on the original shape Monaro, hmm. they were a pretty pretty ordinary looking spat that covered half the wheel and it was obviously just an added on bit of metal that looked as though it's been done in the uh, in a rush yeah in a rush or in, the, <laughs> in your backyard shed <laughs> so, <laughs> and from my recollection of seeing Monaro's over the years when I was a kid I never ever remember seeing a set of spats on one of them <laughs> Uh, I think there's a message there. <laughs> the other thing with the Monaro is that it just adds so much to the panel, the large panel behind the two-door, the, the door from, from the two-door shape. Yes. And so adds to the bulkiness, I think, of that back half of the car. That's probably true. Yeah, yeah, it just adds a bit more paint paint colour that you can do without. Now, you're a Monaro fan. You you own uh, Race 1 and own a, an original 350, 1969. Uh, uh, yes. And uh, you saw a couple out there, but some that had, you know, non-standard wider wheels, but not too wide. Is that important? you got to be a bit careful of going too wide and too big a diameter, in my opinion. If you go too wide, it looks like a drag car. If you go too low profile, yes. it looks like one of those bouncing cars you get in America. Now, what are the? Oh, I don't know what they call those. The ones that are just suspension. Yeah, that's no, true. Yes, yeah. The other thing I saw there that made me think, I've been thinking about for a while, is the big cars that have a rounded glass on the back. We saw it there was a Jensen the old Jensen, and it's almost a fish tank-like uh, rear window, very rounded shape, must let in, I think Dean mentioned, an enormous amount of sun. Um, I'm not sure that they do it, although I do where they are rounded and work a bit is the Monaro that you like, which is based on the HQ and then the HT Monaro. You like those? Yeah, yeah, the H HQ shape. In my opinion, um, was a very, very well balanced shape, and it certainly had a quite a largeish wrap around rear window. It wrapped down to the sides a bit. Mm. But yeah, the, the Jensen, the Jensen Intercept, had a huge rear window, the lift up hatch type one, um, which was probably good for the glass house effect in England, but <laughs> not too sure <laughs> in Australia it would have been so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where you'd want to wear your peak cap backwards if you were sitting in the back seat, wouldn't it? Because that's where the sun would be beetling in. They had some other funny little cars there, the Honda S600 sports car, you know, a little blue one there. Now, the Honda S600 was an unusual car, four-cylinder, four carburetors, really sort of a derivative of a motorbike engine, I believe. Uh, essentially, yeah, I believe that's what it it started life as a uh, as a motorbike engine, six hundred cc bike engine that revs. I think the chap said it revs to something like ten ten thousand rpm, mm. which uh, I think it was built in nineteen sixty five. I think the the S six hundred. So when you think, I saw them as a young kid, and I just love the shape of them. 
I mean, they look tinny and, and very simplistic now, but I remember seeing a picture of one yeah. and going back to that picture time and time again and just enjoying it. It shows you how right. misdirected the youth can be. It did, of course, have a chain drive. Yes, yes. A lovely story by the owner of that. It was belonged to his father. His father passed away a couple of years ago. But in sort of a homage to his father, he just brings it out very regularly. There's only 14 left in the world, he said. Yeah, that's staggering, isn't it? Because they would, they would have made quite a few of them at the time, I would have thought. He said one sold for $77,000. Okay. Uh, there was another one that was only $24,000, but it's slightly compromised. It had a Nissan engine. <laughs> <laughs> Fred, you, you like memorabilia and that, and you saw a book there, which was the Force 7, P76, two-door, never made it in production, but they had a manual there. They had an owner's manual. Well, I had two. Yeah, yeah, there a number of them. Yeah, yeah, they were actually for sale, yeah. Um, so they, they must have printed quite a few of those in anticipation of selling the model, I suspect. That's probably the first thing they printed, which <laughs> might, might not have been the most successful way to go. Is it a little bit like finding the draft manuscript of a book that was never produced from a famous author? Probably not as rare as the draft manuscript, given that given they had a, a number of them for sale. I'm not too sure how much they were. We didn't, didn't inquire there. I have great trepidation in mentioning anything to do with the P76 the people that uh, have car clubs to do with a P76 are highly dedicated and passionate about the detail that they believe is right uh, and the value and quality of the cars, which they believe was super. <laughs> because our good friend Evan was the uh, one of the uh, clerks, of course, and driving around uh, leading people, because that's the nice thing about it. They did tours around the circuit as well. So various clubs at various times were called out to do a, a tour. And the old double-decker bus taking people around yeah. in the top top level of it. <laughs> Evan did say there's always one or two guys, because when you drive around, you've got to drive sedately. No one's going to – if anyone hooning around, doesn't it? But, of course – he got overtaken once by a guy and flying past. But he said it wasn't as bad. The, the time before, uh, a number of the people, particularly with the microcars, stopped on the main street to take a picture of their car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it's when you love something so much, you're blind to the realities around you. <laughs> Which actually, speaking of the microcars, the little me three-wheel Messerschmitts. Yes. There, there were some of those there. That, that was interesting to see those going around. Oh, they, they were so tiny. So exactly. incredibly tiny. But they could jam two people into them. Maybe not comfortably, but they no. had two people in them. They weren't the smallest of people either. Uh, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm treading on delicate ground. <laughs> Fred, always lovely to talk to you, mate. I appreciate that, and I enjoyed going out there, and thank you for your company and your time now. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it too. It was a good day out. And that's Fred Brain, our mechanical engineer and a person who can add something more than just a shallow appearance of a car to some of the technology that's involved. 
You're listening to Overdrive. We've had a bit of a run with electric cars in the last few weeks. One of those was the Audi e-tron GT. This is the entry model to the RS e-tron GT, which we've also driven. Priced from around $179,000 plus usual costs, the e-tron GT has a 93 kWh battery with a claimed range of 540km. It has a two-speed reduction transmission and a quattro drivetrain. This is good for a sub 5 second 0-100km times and a top speed of 245km per hour. When driving, it feels as though I simply glide along quietly and effortlessly. And unlike many electric cars, it will happily roll on when you take your foot off the accelerator. But the real feature of the e-tron GT is its beauty. It's a stunning design. It blends coupe-like lines with a saloon functionality. Everywhere I drove it, people watch me. It certainly attracts attention. Inside, it's comfortable, luxurious and familiar. The Audi layout is practical and user-friendly. For a big car, there isn't a lot of room in the back seats and boot space is a little restricted. The Audi e-tron GT shows that elegance sometimes doesn't come cheap. I'm Brenna Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Mark Wesley for their help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or links to the socials and podcasts. Just search for Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.